Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Compromised Christianity, part two today. Last week I talked to you about the problem, the first problem that I outlined in the book of Corinthians was the problem that these people were judging things by earthly standards. But moving on to the second problem with Christians at the Corinthian church, as I try to summarize my thoughts under this heading today, losing our spiritual awareness, or that's what the Corinthians did. They lost their spiritual awareness. And in the 16th verse of the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You've read that passage probably a number of times. And here's another one of these nuggets that I'm going to feed to you today that I think is going to be an eye-opener. Because I think I know what you're thinking when you read that. And if what you're thinking is what I think you're thinking, you're wrong. And I think it'll make sense to you whenever I lay this out. Losing our spiritual awareness. Now from that 16th verse where he says you're the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. There's two significant points to this passage. One is that Paul has laid out the fact that the Holy Spirit is a constant resident. Well, that's not uh, earth-shaking. We should know that. But we don't always act like we're aware of that. That's where the Corinthians developed their problem. That's where we develop our problem when we go through life day to day without remembering the constant presence of of the Holy Spirit. The second thing we get out of this, uh, a, a simple rule that we need to lay down, is the temple of the Holy Spirit is very precious to God. For he said that if you wreck this temple, God will wreck you because God's holy and you're the temple. Now there's one question that comes to mind to clarify this what is the temple? Obviously, he says, you are. But that doesn't tell the whole story. If you don't mind going to the sixth chapter, and I might have a scripture verse on the, the uh, screen, but you'll find in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and the 19th verse, Paul again alludes to the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he's much more descriptive this time, much more precise, so there's no misunderstanding about the temple in the sixth chapter. He says, do you not know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, 
There's no mystery about this. If you are a born-again Christian, God considers your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you have a constant presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. As born-again Christians, we cannot arbitrarily make daily decisions about what we want to do based on anything other than what God wants us to do. We don't belong to ourselves. These bodies are not ours to do with as we please. If we do things that abuse our bodies, we're offending God. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We should treat ourselves as though this is a sacred habitat for the Spirit of God. Have you done that? Do you do that faithfully? Now let's continue. In that sixth chapter, he says, I have... He quotes, he quotes the Corinthians, or he, he suggests this is probably what you're saying or what you're thinking. Quote, I have the right to do anything. That would be the Corinthians saying that. Paul, coming out of the quotations, says, you say. But not everything is beneficial. That's his response to what they might say. I can do anything I want. And Paul says, not everything you do is beneficial to you. Again, he quotes them and says, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality because that stays in the context of the subject matter in the sixth chapter but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? So then, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body, For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he's showing the incompatibility of being united with God and being sexually immoral because of the spiritual implications of becoming united together. Now that's why we have a problem with people sleeping around and living together is because they are uniting themselves together in a very holy contract. And the argument might be, yeah, but, you know, if, if we're faithful one to another, then we're same as married. Well, that's probably true. And it might sound shocking for you to hear me say that's probably true. Because you have committed the act of marriage. The problem is most people don't stay faithful. And for some reason they want that escape clause so that if we're not really married, I don't have to be faithful. I can, find, I can get out of this thing without any legal complications. So they refuse to commit themselves. So consequently, when somebody has slept around with multiple people, they have literally married themselves to become one with more than one. And it becomes a complication. So he says, flee from sexual immorality. All the other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body as he comes back to the the importance of your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. 
You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, I've satisfied what it means for your body to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we have to go back to the third chapter because that's not what Paul's talking about here. As a matter of fact, you have to look at the context of the third chapter. Do you remember last week when we were there? He starts in the first chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter, the fourth chapter. He does not change subject matters. He's talking about the division in the Corinthian church. He's talking about their sectarianism. Whereas one's saying, Paul's my favorite preacher. Apollos is my favorite preacher. Cephas is my favorite preacher. And they were being divided over this. And he refers back to that again and again and again in the first four chapters. Why in the middle of the third chapter would he stop and say, and your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't follow the flow. It's not logical. But within the context of this, when he's talking about division... When he's talking about, don't you people who are so divided, and you're having these little squabbles in your congregation, don't you people know you're the temple of God, and whoever destroys the temple, God will destroy him. So this time, Paul uses the temple not as your body, but the temple as the church. You people are the church. You people are the body of Christ. The church is the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And if you keep that in mind, you won't be acting so carnal in the body of Christ. Now, in the six years that I've been here, I thank God that we have come together to conduct our annual business and we've been able to comport ourselves in ways that bless and please God. In spite of the fact that some of you probably know of business meetings you've been in, maybe in another church, somewhere, where it was just a knockdown drag out. And as we came in here and we just told the people we are here in God's house to conduct God's business in a godly manner, suddenly we just, we just kept giving glory to God in the way we behaved. Because there's no excuse in the church to fight and to bicker, and to devour one another, and to, and to act immaturely. There is no excuse for it. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, church. And furthermore, God is so protective of the church, that He says, anybody that tears it up, I will destroy them. Woe to anybody who brings division and strife into the church. Now, not only have we promoted unity, not only do we celebrate unity as the, the body of Christ, the west side body of Christ, but we also have to back up now and take a close look at what it means to destroy that unity. Because in my pastoral ministry, from time to time, there have been people there that I feel like their only mission was to cause division. They didn't serve any other purpose that I could see other than to come and just get people riled up about something. And God's word is so strong on this. Don't tear the body up. This is where the Holy Spirit dwells. This is a holy place. Keep the unity. It blesses God. But it sure angers Him if we bring division and strife into the body. Now we go back to the 17th chapter of John that I brought in last week because I, I saw how interesting it was that the 17th chapter of John, Jesus prays for his followers and the things he prays for 
are so similar to what Paul is dealing with here in the book of Corinthians. And you remember last week when I told you he prayed for them, Father, keep them. Just keep them. Let them make it. Let them succeed. Let them go all the way through. These that you have committed to my charge, I want to see them make it. I, as a pastor, want to see you make it. That's the reason what I'm preaching last week in this week. Because I don't know that every one of us sitting here in this congregation, that you're on the right trajectory. I hope we are, but I don't know that. And as a pastor, it's my job to help us see what does it really take to make it to heaven. Nobody's going to be surprised that they made it to heaven. But I think there's going to be a lot of surprises that they didn't. And maybe they'll be shocked they didn't because we didn't spend enough time in figuring out what does God really expect of us to live the kind of life he wants us to live. So Christ prays for his followers. Then he comes to the 21st verse in that 17th chapter of John. And he says this prayer, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that, here's the justification for unity, so that the world may believe you have sent me. In other words, we are testifying before the world. Stick your hands up, people. How many of you know of a church that has been in division and strife? Can I see your hands? Do you think that church convinced the world of anything? Do you think the world looked at them and said, I want to be a part of that party? No, they're always looking for excuses not to go to church. And they come in and they see a knockdown drag out in church and they see the way church people treat one another and they leave and they say... We get along better down at the bar. You've heard them say that. You church people can't even get along with each other. And Jesus said, God, help them be united so the world would believe. And you know, it's real tempting whenever we live in a, in, in, in a community situation like we have in a church to get along because we test one another. I love my wife more than I love anybody on the face of the earth. And sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Now, if the kind of love I have for her and she has for me means that once in a while we have these little moments, how much more when we're in a church we're going to have sometimes when somebody chafes us. We don't get along too well. But that's where the maturity comes along where we have to believe in being united and not let the division, the seeds of division start and forgive and love, and be the bigger person. Instead of carrying these things on our sleeves and moping and going around, we just say, we cannot be responsible for tearing up the temple of God. I choose to forgive and go on. Because one of these days, I'm going to get to where I like them again. I'll even sit with them. Unity is so very important. So Christ says, we will be unbelievable and unconvincing to the world. We who talk about the God of love who can't even love one another. We won't be convincing until we become united like we ought to be. Paul emphatically states, Jesus emphatically states that a church in disunity will never influence the world. Paul emphatically states that God will not tolerate those who create disunity. 
Because Jesus is a builder. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He's a builder. Builders don't like wreckers. They conflict in their purposes. Building a house is totally different. It's constructive. Jesus is a builder. He doesn't like temple wreckers. The second thing in keeping our spiritual awareness is when we lose our spiritual awareness, we gravitate towards, court, towards carnality. And Paul addresses this church, uh, this Corinthian church, uh, in a, in a, with a number of different issues where they've lost their awareness that the Holy Spirit is not only present in the church, but Paul says in the sixth chapter, he's present in your life. And if you, I promise you, if you got up tomorrow and you were able to keep the sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life active in your mind and in your heart for every waking moment you had, you would change the way you live tomorrow. When you realize the Holy Spirit is here, should I look at what I'm looking at? Should I say what I'm about to say? Should I pop off and lose my temper right now? Should I mistreat that driver that I don't like the way they're behaving? When you say, but wait a minute, the Holy Spirit is dwelling here. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if God cares about where the Holy Spirit dwells, and the Holy Spirit cares about whether He is grieved or not, it changes us. We have to be cautious of offending the Holy Spirit. How many times do people park their awareness of the Holy Spirit somewhere and go off and do what they want to do and trust when they come back He's going to be willing to jump back on board with them. Maybe not. You left Him behind to pursue carnality. He wants to dwell and abide with you every day. So do the things you say and do the things you do. Make the Holy Spirit welcome at all times in your life. Or are you excusing yourself from His presence? So Paul talks to the Corinthians and he says, you are forgetting the holy presence of the Spirit in your life. You're forgetting the holy presence of the Spirit in your church. And here's what you're able to do because you are laying this awareness aside. First of all, you're getting all split up in this sectarianism business that he deals with. And, and then he goes to the fifth chapter, and, and he opens up this real shocker. And he tells the Corinthian church, you should be ashamed of yourself that you are accepting this situation of incest from members of your church. You're not just turning a blind eye to it. Somehow you're celebrating this. You know how people get to celebrate the wrong things? Because they are friends and relatives of the offenders. And we defend what our friends and our relatives do. Instead of taking a stance, we find a way to be happy for them. So we can have adultery committed. But that's my friend. That's my family. Therefore, I understand. And they forgot their spiritual bearings. They forgot their spiritual awareness that this has to do with either offending or pleasing God. Not making excuses. And it got so bad in the Corinthian church. There was a, a man 
that evidently was having an affair with his father's wife, and by the statement of that, it was not necessarily his mother, but it was some woman that was married to his father, a stepmother, and he was having an affair, and it was an incestuous relationship. And Paul put it in a cultural context when he said, you are doing, doing something that even pagans will not put up with. In their day and age, the pagans would have chased that out of their community. It was shameful. And this church celebrated it. They loved them anyway. Loved them through it. And Paul said, you should have put that man out of your church. But you didn't have the integrity to do that. In the sixth chapter, he tells the Corinthians, they have a tendency to take their squabbles in the church to a civil court and have civil courts resolve it. And he said, you're going to judge angels. And you can't even settle your own affairs. You're not thinking. You're not keeping this spiritual dimension, this awareness in your mind. He tells them in the next chapter that they have a lot of twisted and perverted concepts about uh, sexuality and sexual immorality. And he he tells them very plain things about what it means, the importance of the marriage vows and, and the importance of, of uh, being faithful one to another and, and spends that entire chapter just, just straightening out things they should have known. But this church was getting so twisted. He goes to the 8th chapter and, and uh, he, 7th chapter mainly about sexual immorality, 8th chapter mainly about marriage, 9th uh, chapter... Uh, he reveals something very quirky about the congregation, as though these other things weren't quirky, that in spite of the fact that, that they were very lax about their, their sexuality, they were very tolerant of the incest, they were very childish in their sectarianism, there was this issue of meat at the market. And they were nitpicking legalistically the issue of, well, somebody, I saw them at the market, and they bought some meat that was left over from the local pagan festival. And they got a bargain price on it, but that was meat that was going to be used to, to give to idols. And if they bought it, does the demon that is associated with that idol jump in you because you ate the meat? And... There's some there that believed it did. That they were trafficking with devils because they were eating meat that was used in pagan sacrificial idol worship. And Paul says, I can't believe it. The very fundamental things about Christianity, about morality, you're messing up. You don't have it. And then it comes down to this silly thing and you're making a big deal out of it like this is the issue that decides whether you get to go to heaven or you have to go to hell. People are so messed up, majoring in minors and minoring in majors. And he goes to the 11th chapter, and he says, uh, you've wrecked the Lord's Supper. By the time they had got done twisting and contorting that, it became uh, a wild, drunken fest. And people were, essentially what was happening was people who came to eat some were not getting enough to eat. And some were getting all they wanted. They were being very piggish about it. They didn't care. So they were not 
respecting one another, the poor, the needy, the, uh, the, the timid. We're being shoved to the back of the line. It's first come, first serve, and it's all gone by the time you get there. Tough, you should have you come early. They didn't care. Very heartless. And then when they got done, they, they really overdid it on, on the wine, and they started getting drunk. So they've been gorging themselves and drinking into drunkenness, and this was the Lord's Supper. Now, you have to understand the history of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me, he, he was not saying to the church, when you get together, pour yourself a half an ounce of grape juice and get yourself a small enough cracker, it'll get stuck between your teeth before it's swallowed. And when you do this, as often as you do it, monthly, quarterly, yearly, when you do this, think about me. That is so far from what Jesus said. Do you realize that the first Lord's Supper was a meal? It wasn't crackers and juice. It was a meal. And it was very typical during the course of this meal to begin a meal with the breaking of bread. That's why it came to be known as breaking bread with one another because that kind of opened up the whole thing. But they had meat. They had the, the, the vegetables. They, they, it, was, it, it was a banquet. And he broke the bread. But it just so happened this time when he broke the bread, unlike any other banquet or meal they'd ever been to, when he broke it, he said, remember me when you do this. And it was also typical at the end of the meal to pass a cup of blessing. That was culturally uh, uh, common in those days. So when he passed the cup of blessing, he said something that they'd never heard before. And he said, and when you do this, think of me. So when you translate what Jesus did on that first Lord's Supper, here's what he really meant. He said, when you eat with people, think of me. And how often do you eat? His point is, thinking of me, never forgetting me. Every time you pick up a piece of bread, think of me. Every time you drink the juice, think of me. In other words, don't forget me. Not once a month, not twice a year, not once a year, but daily in the most common thing that you do, eating and sleeping and everything, let something be a reminder that there's a spiritual awareness about you that you can never get away from the fact that when you eat bread and when you drink of the juice of the vine, you are suddenly remembered there's somebody who died for me, somebody who loved me, somebody who cares for me. How can I live the kind of life that I want to live and this body wants to live and carnality wants to be lived when every bite I take and every... Every drink I drink reminds me, Jesus died for me. That's what he meant when he said, remember me. Every day. That's what I mean by spiritual awareness. We're losing our awareness of the spiritual dimension. And people get real serious when we have our monthly communion. Because it's a holy time. We get real somber. And we hold that cup and we hold that bread and we think, oh, he died for me. But do you have that kind of a feeling every time you eat? Because you should. 
We should think of Jesus and what he did for us. We should think of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Every time we eat, every time we wake, every time we go to bed, every time we look at somebody that's lost, there should be a spiritual cognizance, a spiritual awareness that what? Governs our lives and keeps us from doing the wrong thing and helps us to do the right thing. Paul said to the Corinthian church, you're losing your spiritual bearings. That's the reason you're acting like you're acting. And all of these things that he mentioned to the Corinthians stem from their failure to keep this constant awareness of the proximity of the Holy Spirit in their life. And we too will drift and we too will fail if we neglect to acknowledge the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm reminded of the words of King David who had gone too far in pushing the boundaries who had abused his authority and power as a king and taken another man's wife. How he sat down and penned these words that you can hear him, you can hear the fear in his, in, in his words. As he realizes, I've gone farther than I ever thought I would go. I've done things I thought I would never do. And he says, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because suddenly he realized the risk he had put his own life of having the Holy Spirit withdrawn from him. And what he wanted so much in Bathsheba was not what he really needed. What he really needed was the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And David thinks it was the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit that caused me to rip that lion with my bare hands. It was the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit that caused me to destroy that bear with my own hands. It was the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in my life that caused me, a little shepherd boy, to stand in front of an intimidating giant and bring that man to the ground and defeat the Philistines. It was the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit that enabled me to write those beautiful psalms and sing them to the Lord. The power of the presence of the Holy Spirit that elevated me from a poor shepherd boy to king of this beautiful nation of Israel. And suddenly he realizes his life had brought him to the point where God just might take the Holy Spirit from him. And he said, God, don't do it. I cannot live without the Holy Spirit. Yet we play fast and loose with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we possess this constant awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, then we have this automatic governor for our actions, our conversations, our thoughts. When we reference everything we do and everything we say against the grid of all spiritual things from God, we take more care in our conduct. Is the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit something we just dismiss from our lives? Or how can a member of a church congregation bicker and squabble if we remember we the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit? It seems we have evolved in our Christianity somehow to the point where we have quit gauging our actions and our lifestyle and our decisions by eternal truths. And we've started gauging it by, can I get away with it? What's everybody else doing? What are my friends compelling me to partake of? What makes me popular? What makes me feel good? And the 
those are totally the wrong things to judge our actions by. It's only judged by, will this offend God? Will this take the precious power of the presence of the Holy Spirit from me? Or will it enhance His presence in my life? It seems like we sometimes have put eternity awareness in mothballs so we can go our merry way. I question, ask yourself the question, how often do I think about this world is not my home? How often do you think about that? How often do you think about that you're nothing more than a stranger in a strange land, pilgrims passing through? And we have a, we have a city whose builder and maker is God. But this is, this is not our home. We're in a camping situation here. That's it. How often do you think about making this journey successfully to heaven and purposely avoiding hell? Or for that matter, how often do you think about the reality of hell and how it's described in the Bible as a place for chronic and unrepentant, and I list, according to Paul's words, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, the abusers of themselves, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. And when Paul says, these people do not inherit the kingdom, do you carry that on your daily life? Does that govern what you do? Or do we dismiss it? Seems to be this smug complacency about our salvation. We think if we attend church and we believe in God and we pray over our food before we eat, we're Christians. And if we're saved, we're heaven-bound, the rest is meaningless detail. Live like you want. And this has fostered this very lax philosophy of Christianity. And that's why, that's why so much garbage is flowing from the church today. That's why couples are cohabitating and still going to church with no remorse. Because they don't have this spiritual eternity awareness. That's why young men and women are sleeping around because they think their Christianity is still intact because they don't have a spiritual awareness of what does this mean for your spiritual walk? What does this mean for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's why denominations are getting, giving up the fight on the biblical standard and definition of marriage because they don't have this eternity and this spiritual awareness that this counts in eternity what you think about this and how you behave. This is why the language of young, supposedly Christian young people is getting more and more coarse and more and more vulgar because they're not thinking whenever they spew forth the junk and the filth and the garbage of this world and they talk like the movies, talk like sailors. They don't recognize that the Holy Spirit doesn't like that. He's holy. And they don't think about, did I offend Him? And does it matter? That's why this generation doesn't talk much about holiness before the Lord because it seems like there's this desire to keep the things of the world and still keep their ticket to heaven without forfeiting it and not think too much about the Holy Spirit hovering over their life. Don't you know? That's what Paul said. Don't you know? How could you not know? Don't you know? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit and how is it you forgot that? How is it that you're living like you're living and doing what you're doing, knowing that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, both in your body and in your church? 
How do you do these things? The final problem, this will go much faster. The Corinthian church had twisted perspectives about their Christianity. The first thing that they had a twisted perspective about is they thought Christianity allowed them to make it all about themselves. Very much self-importance in these Corinthians. And Paul told them, you're arrogant. Paul says, now brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. That's where their arrogance is coming in. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now, that was a part of the immaturity of these young Christians. I, I see this once in a while in newly saved people, young, immature Christians, is you give them about a year in Christianity, about a year in church, and suddenly you can't teach them anything else. There's an arrogance that sets in that they don't want to learn anymore. They know it all. They become hyper-spiritual people, better than everybody else around them, and they don't know squat about Christianity. Let's just be honest about it. But I've seen that arrogance set in. When they lose their teachability, when they become so arrogant that they can't be taught anything else, they have a problem. It's a Corinthian problem. And Paul is dealing with these people. So you haven't been saved very long. You're young Christians. But already you are so haughty and so self-righteous and so stuck on yourself and you don't have anything that wasn't given to you by somebody else. And you're acting like you got it all on your own. And now he goes into this very sarcastic passage. Just dripping with sarcasm. And he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. And you've begun, you've begun to reign. And you've done that without us. You see yourselves as royalty in Christianity. You see yourselves as so important. And Paul was talking like this because he was so offended because the Corinthians were telling him, we don't need you anymore, Paul. We've got it all together. We've got it all figured out. Besides, you're highly suspect. We have our suspicions about you. You're not near the Christian you think you are. And I'll cover that in just a minute. But this was their attitude. So Paul says, already, you've got it all. You're blessed, you're kings, you're priests. But he says, as for me and the apostles, he said, God put us apostles that were nobody compared to you Christians. Hear the sarcasm? Compared to you Corinthians, we apostles were nothing. Because, see, God took us apostles and he put us in this parade and, he's, and, and we are being marched into the arena where we're going to be fed to the lions, and they put us at the end of the parade, the most demeaning and debasing place in the, pro in the procession, and they're mocking us as we walk, and that's where we apostles. Now, you people, you're rich. You people, you're reigning. But we apostles, we're being mocked and scourged and about to be killed. He goes on. He said, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We're fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. 
And to this very hour, as he gets a little more serious, he says, we go hungry and thirsty and we are in rags and we are brutally treated and we are homeless and we work with our own hands and when we are cursed, we bless and when we're persecuted, we endure it and when we are slandered, we answer kindly and because we do those things, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment where you people believe that we're nothing because of the way we behave. And Paul says, you people that are gauging Christianity by your own life, and you're trying to tell me that you even doubt that I'm an apostle. Because here's, here's the problem, and it leads me into the next point, that not only did they have this arrogance, but they were poisoned with the doctrine of prosperity. Here is the problem. The Corinthians looked at Paul's life, and they said in a very smug and haughty and arrogant manner, if you were really the man of God that you claim to be, if you really had the power of God that you claim to have, you would not be having all the troubles that you're having. If you knew the power of faith to speak the word, you wouldn't have to go hungry. You could speak it into existence by faith and have a banquet if you wanted. There's no sense being a Christian and walking in the power of God of ever being hungry, ever being destitute, ever being uh, dressed in rags. Does it sound like a prosperity gospel you've heard this day? If you just had enough faith, you would never have to have anything wrong with your life. And there are preachers that are still pumping this garbage forth from their pulpits, still preaching it on television. A great majority of the of the biggest name mega church pastors and televangelists are still preaching the prosperity gospel and writing books that are selling that are bestsellers just telling you how great life can be if you're just a Christian. And it does not jibe with what Paul is writing here where he's telling the Corinthians, you think it's all a rose garden and I'm telling you as an apostle, it's tough to live for God and serve Him. So they were poisoned with this doctrine of prosperity. They had unrealistic expectations of what Christianity would do for their life. Like a miracle elixir. It's no wonder so many people are following these prosperity preachers. That appeals to them. They want to get saved and confess a million dollars. They buy into this nonsense about send me a seed faith of a hundred dollars and God will multiply it back to you a hundred thousand. It doesn't take rocket scientists or nuclear physicists to figure out that that man's scheme ought to work in reverse. Hey, you send me a hundred dollars and God will give you a hundred thousand. And Paul says in the twelfth chapter, Three times I pleaded, pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away from me. But God said to me, I'm not going to take it away. Get used to it. That just irritates the prosperity, health and wealth preachers to no degree. But what God did say is so powerful for every believer here today. You get a hold of this, and you've got something to take with you today. God said, I won't, but my grace is sufficient.
walking through today, people, that you haven't been able to get lifted from your shoulders. You've prayed and prayed, God, take it away, and it just won't go away. And you keep wondering, what is the secret formula? Have I sent the money to the right televangelist? Am I doing the right things? Do I have strong enough faith? Am I tensing my muscles enough when I pray? How can I move this mountain? This mountain has to be moved. I want you to hold on to something, people, because I know people struggle. I'm not preaching to some, some theory about where people want to be. I'm preaching where life is. You're struggling. It's tough. And I've got something for you today. God's grace is sufficient for you. You're going to make it. I know it'd feel real nice. You'd be encouraged if I'd say, you come up and pray and it's going to be lifted today. How wonderful that would be. But if it's not lifted, I've got a God that says, I'll get you through it. I'll make sure you do not fail. I can support you and sustain you no matter what you have to go through. That's what you have to carry. Therefore, I like Paul's therefore. Because God did not take it away, and because he said his grace is sufficient, then he changed his whole attitude about life's difficulties. And this is the one that I think is going to be the hardest for us to model. But we need to get a hold of this. Therefore, he says, he says I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses. So Christ's power may rest on me. Christ's power comes in a way on you when you're going through it that it never comes on you when you're riding in a limousine. When you're skating into heaven. When you're sailing and soaring. Christ's power comes on you in a special way when there's real difficulty and adversity and trouble and trial. And Paul recognized the value of Christ's power. He said, therefore, I am going to boast about my weaknesses because I find when I am weak, then I am strong. That's whenever God shines in your life. He doesn't shine when you've got a big bank account. He doesn't shine when you've got great health. He doesn't shine when you're doing fine in all areas of life. He shines when you're struggling and the world looks at you and they says, I don't know how you do it. And you say, I can't do it. But it's because God is made perfect in my weakness. That's where he does his best work. Why? The question is, should anybody preach a gospel of prosperity when those things are not the things that Develop us. It's a popular passage of Scripture. It's one that is much easier to quote than it is to live. Paul says your problem is you have these pagan philosophies about weakness and strength, poverty and prosperity, success and failure. And you are thinking like pagans think. You need to think like Christians think. Because when you think like Christians think, the world's success is failure. And the world's concept of failure in God is success. When you think like Christ, the world's concept of weakness is strength. But the world's concept of strength is nothing but weakness. When you think like Christ, the world's concept of prosperity is junk. He said it's nothing but dung. It's nothing but garbage under my feet. But the world's concept of poverty is riches in Jesus Christ. You've got a pagan philosophy about life. He says, I beg you when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. As he goes back to their inability to judge by godly standards. And then he says this famous, the weapons we fight with. 
are not weapons of this world. You are judging by appearances, which is a defense of the accusation leveled against him that if he was really a super apostle, he wouldn't have any trouble. And he said, no. He said, the problem is you people have a pagan understanding of what is good and blessing and what is a cursing and hardship. So he says, I will boast of my weakness so Christ's power may rest upon me. I will delight in my weaknesses, my insults, my hardships, my persecutions, and my difficulties. And I want to know how many people today will covenant together with God this week to adopt the Paul attitude. And when you have trouble this week, you will say, I will delight in my persecutions, in my afflictions, in my struggle, in my pain, in my insults, my hardships, my difficulties. Will you covenant together and say, this week I'm going to try it. And whenever these hardships come, I'm just going to delight in it because I realize right now I am a candidate for the power of Christ to rest on my life. When the power of Christ rests on the life of those who are suffering and struggling and trying to get through, through the world sees that you have something they do not have. And their testimony is, I couldn't make it. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> because when I am weak and then I am strong and God's grace, his power is made perfect. It's perfected when I am weak. These things that are birthed in us in the midst of our struggles, just think for a minute. What is it that God births in you whenever you have adversity? Patience, meekness, humility, faith. You begin to long for heaven. The, the worse trouble I have in this world, the more trouble I have in this world, the more I think if I could just go to heaven. How many, have you ever done that? Am I alone in thinking I just would soon not be here? I want to go to heaven. No problems. My adversities make me think about heaven and eternity. What does prosperity do? It does exactly the opposite on everything. It makes me proud. It makes me impatient. It makes me self-sufficient. It increases my longing for this world because if this world is what gave me this, I want more of it. I fall in love with the things of this world. And everything prosperity does, it takes away what adversity can do for me. They are diametrically opposed. They don't work together well. And why? If prosperity cannot produce these most important Christian characteristics in us, why are we so enamored with it? In the past few days, the Roman Catholic Church inaugurated their new pope, Pope Francis. The man has brought a totally different dimension as the leader of the entire worldwide Roman Catholic Church. He, he comes as a very humble man. He comes with a very strong re, uh, belief and respect for his vow of poverty. He's always lived a very humble life. He took public transportation. He rode with the common people, even as the cardinal. But now he's the pope. And the, the popes who come out here for their inauguration, he didn't want to sit on the, uh, the papal throne. It was too high. He wanted to be down with everybody else. He didn't want that. He didn't want to wear the crimson robe that the big popes put on because he was so disgusted. He said, you cardinals are all strutting around here like a bunch of peacocks. 
very critical. They are something. They're dressed in this royal regalia, costumes, and, and pomp. He didn't even get his new red leather shoes like the Pope wears. He had on his old black ragged shoes that were threadbare. Dirty shoes under his white tunic. They had a private car to take him back to the hotel. He didn't want a private car. He wanted to ride the bus like he used to ride the bus. He didn't get a new wardrobe. The Catholic Church can afford him a new wardrobe. He said, here's a bunch of these robes right here. The uh, previous people have worn Just tailor them to fit me. That's all I want. Don't spend any money on a new wardrobe. And you contrast this with the slick televangelist that has to have their own limousine and three different houses in Florida, Bel Air, Palm Springs, multi-million dollar mansions, Learjets, because in their own words, God doesn't want His children riding second class. And you contrast the leader of the biggest church in the world whose only mission is to minister to the poor. I don't want these things. I don't need these things. I don't want to spend the money on this big inauguration party. The money can be used for the poor. To the preachers of the gospel today that they want to be surrounded in luxury thinking that's a sign of God's blessings on them. And they got their huge diamond rings and their Rolex watches that cost twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And contrast that with Paul who imagined every hardship and said, but what I want to do is I'll boast in my weakness. For when I'm weak, that's when I'm really strong. And that's when the power of Christ rests on me. And answer this question. Who do you believe? Bow your heads.